You're not alone when it comes to trying new shiny diets, each one promising to make you feel incredible until you realize it's making you feel hungry and deprived and damaging your confidence a little more than the last diet you tried. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to the Anti-Diet Podcast Show, a podcast on a mission to help you break free from yo-yo dieting and equip you with evidence-based advice so you can feel more confidence in yourself without ever feeling deprived. I'm Farah Karamburi, a deep health practitioner practitioner, an author, a keynote speaker, and the founder of the 30-Day Anti-Diet Challenge. Each episode is created to help you take one step forward in your weight loss journey without being on a diet. Each day, I will bring you a wealth of knowledge about how you can lose weight without being on a diet. And each week, I'm going to be joined by a guest or a client that's going to give us the insights and the expert advice in the world of well-being. So together, we can learn from real-life trial and triumphs. Setting up your meeting for Facebook Live. Good morning and welcome to the Anti-Diets Insight with Farah Karamburi. I'm your host, Deep Health Practitioner, keynote speaker and the founder of 30 Anti-Diet Challenge. And today we have a guest expert in the house, guys. Somebody that I've been waiting for a long time. It's Marianne. Marianne's going to talk about her journey and also menopause. A lot of you have asked me many questions about that. So hopefully we'll be able to answer those today. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on today. No problem at all. Super happy to have you on here. Now tell us, um, Marianne, are you able to share it? Were you able to do that? You happy with that? No, I am still working oh, on Go for it. Yeah, no problem at all. Up there. Find the share button just under that post. I'm going to do the same and share it on my personal page as well. The more people know about it, the better. There we go, share. Yeah, I can hear us. <laughs> Just trying to share it. There we go. Share post. Okie dokie. I think that's going to end up on my personal page, but there we go. Let's not worry about that for now. Absolutely fine, yeah. There we go. Brilliant. Excellent. Mary, am I, am I saying your name correctly, firstly? That's correct. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, Marion, tell us. So you do, uh, you're an expert in women's, not just menopause, it's everything else around women's health, aren't you as well? Yes. So it's not just menopause, it's um, women's health in terms of hormonal balance, particularly around um, things like menstrual issues, PCOS, endometriosis, uh, and their general well-being. I think because the, the key point to start with is when we talk about women's health, uh, it's not just um, what happens with our periods and our uterus. It, you know, uh, women's health is affected. Our whole bodies are affected by our hormones. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things I work with women to do is bring their whole body back into balance. 
um, because it's getting that foundational balance right that impacts things like our menstrual cycles and our perimenopause. Um, so yeah, I work with the whole woman, not just the UK. Just the, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and now before you even got into, before we get into the detail of what you do, why did you get into this? Give us your backstory. So my backstory is varied, really. Um, I used to work in a completely and utterly different field. I worked um, in human rights uh, with asylum seekers and refugees for a, a decade, good decade, and that was extremely stressful. Um, and it had a huge impact on my health, and I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but I knew I wasn't great. And I went to seek, first of all, acupuncture um, with a practitioner where I lived and uh, became intrigued by it. And I was at a point in my life and career where... Um, I knew I needed to do something different. I knew I needed to get out. It was it was slowly killing me. And um, more by chance, I just happened to be checking. I was seeing somebody properly trained and there was a section on how to become an acupuncturist. And I thought, well, how, how do you become an acupuncturist? And I started reading one click led to another and the thoughts, I thought, I, I would love to do this. And um, that's the path I then went down. So I, I retrained as an acupuncturist to start with. And through doing that, um, I developed an interest in women's health um, because within Chinese medicine, you do a lot of um, in-depth look at the menstrual cycle from a Chinese medical point of view. But then that also wove in with where I was at with my own personal life. Um, so I, I had just you know, met my husband, got married, wanted to start a family. And then we soon found ourselves going down the path of uh, miscarriage. Um, and then when I was pregnant, I then ended up with gestational diabetes, even though I didn't have any of the risk factors for it. Um, and so through both of those experiences, I started delving more into what could I do to help myself? And I pretty quickly found there was a real lack of information out there. Um, mm -hmm. And that the information that I was being told on one level um, by the kind of local nurse specialist and the GP was very different with what I was finding out about the research on the internet and there was this clash and um, one of the things that as I delved deeper and deeper into everything that kept coming up for me is why why didn't I already know this as a woman why have I not been taught yeah. before that's a really good point actually it's huge and then with the women I work with in my acupuncture clinic and then I then because of my interest in women's health I then took that further and trained as a women's health coach integrative women's health coach with the um, integrative women's health institute in the states um, who very much take a functional medicine based approach to health so I really kind of blend the kind of re the research the latest research with the Chinese medicine training you know and and you know all the latest kind of functional medicine approach to health and and research that's into women's health and blend that together when I work with women but you wow. know what what what, what I a then, pivot though from yeah, yeah. Uh, from a law wasn't it you said you yeah, were doing a human yeah. right laws yeah um, yeah completely pivot. something different and do you think you're I still feel there's a connection though because as a lawyer you're always looking for answers aren't you and you're going deeper into getting to the bottom of everything you're yeah. doing the same with your your own health essentially absolutely, absolutely. and it's it's one of the things still I'm transfer yeah. Oh, this huge skill transfer and it's that kind of intellectual pursuit of looking for answers and, and it's also how I handle things you know when we were dealing with miscarriages and stuff like that I was like there's got to be a reason behind this mm. you hold our well keep trying you know you'll be lucky this happens to lots of women that just yeah, wasn't one in three you get a leaflet and get sent home don't you yeah if, if, if even that and, and and it's you know and it's such a devastating time and very much 
huge. And then, you know, I was obviously at this point, I was mid 30s. So I was conscious of the old ticking mm. clock and all of that. And so I was like, I don't have years to waste here. I don't have, you know, five, six more years to, to mess around with this and hope I get lucky. You know, mm. so it, it was very much a case of, you know, cope by understanding, but also mm. be proactive in terms of making sure that I got the help I needed. Um, and again, same with gestational diabetes, you know, it's, it's, it's well, I mean, it's the general vein that runs through women's healthcare anyway, you're told very little, you know, told to kind of pat on the head and on you go. And if you ask questions, well, that's, you know, you're, you're being difficult, or, you know. Um, and so my approach with that again was to work out how then I could eat properly. You know, what, what had I been doing wrong, if you like? And, you know, I thought I'd had a healthy diet and it was, it was, as diets go, it wasn't bad, but it certainly wasn't blood sugar balanced in the way it should have been. Mm -hmm. And as I've gone through and the more and more studies I've done into women's health, the more I've realized the absolute crucial underpinning that blood sugar balances to the whole hormonal balance side of things and uh, as we head into perimenopause you know all, all of that um, is underpinned by blood sugar balance oh and my god Let, let's go deeper into that one because this is like a very sore point for almost most women isn't it really firstly before we even go in there why is it that there's such a lack of education around this I mean I, I, the only education I had was when I was pregnant I had a miscarriage and then I had a, a normal pregnancy, then a miscarriage. And the first time I had miscarriage, I was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what it meant. I literally didn't even know the meaning of it. And I was again, what, in my 27 hours, something like this. Um, and I just was, you know, sorry, there's no heartbeat. And here's the leaflet. We sit in the corner, me and my husband. I have a little cry. I feel like I'm, I failed. What have I done? What, what's wrong with my body? Why didn't I carry? There was no explanation. There's a leaflet being presented to me. Go home and read it. Obviously, when I went home, start Googling things as much as you could Google then. And I didn't find anything. I just thought it's me. I am not able to produce kids. I immediately took their blame on myself. Oh, it's huge. It's and just my life changed after that. Weirdly, I was from a happy person. I became a sad person, really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the effect on me was profound. I mean, I remember sitting there. It was, it was what, what, what for me, it would have been what it was Mother's Day. But I should have just been holding a newborn at that time. And I remember sitting there on that day, just crying my heart out and telling my husband he'd married the wrong woman and telling him if he wanted to leave, he could, you know. And it's, it, it is soul destroying. It absolutely tears the heart out of you. And you're given very little by way of answer. I mean, I had one GP sit there when I was sobbing, tell me I should consider myself lucky. So I probably would have had a disabled child if it carried on. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm, that's wrong on so many levels. But, but you know, wow. it, it, it's the lack of compassion that's there. And I think, you know, the, the studies that now show how traumatizing miscarriage and loss can be, you know, in terms of its link to PTSD and then the, the ongoing link that it can then have on anxiety during pregnancy and postnatal depression, you know, it's, it's huge issues and it's massively, massively um, underappreciated. And There's it's a link. Sorry, I didn't realize that. There's a link between miscarriage and postnatal depression. Trauma, any kind of trauma. If you've gone through trauma. Yeah. Postnatal depression. Because if wow. you think about it, you spend most of your pregnancy anxious that you're going to lose the baby. Yes. You know, that's yeah. going to have a massive knock-on effect ongoing. You know, in that time when you postnatally, when your progesterone is coming down, and progesterone is one of the hormones that helps us with our anxiety levels. So throughout your pregnancy, if you've been anxious, even when your progesterone is elevated as it is in pregnancy, then obviously postpartum, that progesterone comes right down. You know, that shift can really be quite dramatic and, and, and the, the impact on mood and mental health at that point can be huge. So if you've wow. got those unresolved traumas, you know, um, things that are still stressing you out, that higher level anxiety, 
it's going to have an impact. Definitely. You're absolutely correct. I, when I had, oh, I'm not having my second, so it makes sense what you've just said. Uh, after having the first miscarriage, I had a, a, a baby boy who's 15 now. After that, I had another miscarriage. Uh, he was four then, three years old. And when I got pregnant again for the uh, second son that I have, he's 11 now, he, I, I literally checked. I used to go to the toilet and check for, I'm about to lose this baby. I'm a, guess yep. what happened after I had him? Mm-hmm. I went into postnatal depression. Yeah. So for me, it kind of always very made, made, makes very clear sense right now what you've just said. But yeah. who explains that? No one. Nobody does. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's I, I'm, we moved house partway through my pregnancy with my son. And, and at no point, you know, once we moved, I mean, the midwife I'd had previously had been amazing absolutely amazing and really got where you know everything but when I moved not one midwife like, a, I didn't see the same one twice but not one asked me how I actually was in myself you know not one and I was a wreck I was an absolute wreck when I was carrying my son you know because I was just so scared of losing him and then mm. when you in having gestational diabetes again on top and the risk factors that go along with that you know it was yeah and it's it, a really it hard time for you wasn't it huge, yeah. huge, huge, huge factor in our decision not to have a third you know because the, the idea the mental the idea of the mental load of being pregnant again just like no I'm done mm, you're absolutely right just you got to protect yourself haven't you as well okay so um why is there such a lack of education do you think around well, this subject well it goes back to a huge number of biases I mean the the, the there was a, a, a paper out just the other day talking about you know the inherent assumptions about you know the um remnants found of hunter gatherers and who was doing the hunting and who was doing the gathering and you know you can take it into research that goes back into things like that it then carries all the way forward in terms of the assumptions and i think you know darwin has a huge amount to answer for in that sense that he very much viewed women as the inferior being and that's kind of a a kind of mini weaker version of men is, is the assumption you know a lesser version um, as opposed to something different mm. and that bias has carried its way on through science I mean the the bias in research in, into you know for example many of the medicines that we have um, it, it's only relatively recently that they're routinely tested on women you know many of the medications and procedures have been done on men and that was because you know there was an, an ethic side to it people didn't want to uh, well you've got the two sides you've got the hormonal fluctuations each month that make it that bit harder to assess your results but you've also got the fact, the ethics side, that you don't want to be experimenting on a woman who might be pregnant, um, particularly after the whole thalidomide scandal. Um, so people became much more cautious about how that research was done. But the end result is we now have some medicines that are absorbed differently by, by women. Um, you know, different dosages don't necessarily apply because we absorb things either more or less depending on the medication. You've got ways of looking, for example, heart health is the classic one where women are notoriously, um, uh, what's the word, not, not looked after to the same level as, as men will be in terms of if, depending on the symptoms they present with. You know, and there's, there's, a, there's a brilliant book called Sex Matters, um, which del- dives in depth into this by, oh, I can't remember the name, Gregory, does it Dr. Gregory? I'll have a look in a minute. But, you know, she goes into real depth into this, this research bias and pr- procedural bias in hospital. And then, so that then translates forward into the textbooks and, you know, you'll have pages and pages on, on you know, gender urinary issues of, for men, and then you'll have a few pages for women's health. And, you know, it's just been an area that's been neglected. neglected. Yeah, neglected. And because, the, you know, I think the people who are, have historically been in charge of research, 
it doesn't affect them, does it? <laughs> you Maybe know, or men in particular. And yeah. it's because it's also a taboo subject. The minute the girl gets a period, from that moment onwards, it's almost because I, I grew up in Pakistan at the time I had my period. I was, I think I was 10, I was really young. I remember standing in a courtyard. You have a kind of these courtyards, and my mom and my sister were looking at me because I had just kind of put in a pad and it was disgusting and horrible feeling, and I was like really struggling with it. And they looked at, looked over at me and they were like kind of laughing. I could see, but I was told by my mom, who's a Brazilian, by the way, and that Shh, we don't tell people about this. You know, it's a quiet thing. And I know that still carries on, you know, it's right? Huge, yeah. I mean, you, you, you don't go shouting your daughter's got period. I mean, I haven't got a daughter, but you don't do that because you think it's, it's almost like, oh, she's got a period. Oh, it's yeah. almost like it's been not, not celebrated. It's um, not looked down. What's the word I'm looking for? It's like, oh, what a shame almost. Yeah, You're about it, to enter a stage of nightmare. Congratulations. Okay. You know, like that. But it's also our expectation about what it should be about. And I think yeah. through the work, you know, that I've done in my clinic, you know, with, as an acupuncturist and with women's health coach, we're taught to expect suffering, right? Mm. We only suffer if we're out of balance. Now, and then people look at me as if I've, you know, said something really strange when I say this, but, you know, if you bring somebody's body back into balance, having period pain and having bad PMT and all of that is not compulsory, right? It's common. Loads of people have it. That's because mm. most of us are out of balance in some way. You know, and it's it's we're told and that, you know, I've just been um, reading books. My, my daughter's nine now. And obviously I've been trying to gradually discuss with her what's going to be coming in future years. And so I bought several of the books that are designed to help young girls understand what's coming. And already they're telling women that, or young girls that they're going to be in pain. You oh, know, so you know, expect that. Yeah. Pain. So you expect pain. You will feel pain. That's, you know, there's plenty thoughts, of thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah mind-body connection and and you know I'm not I'm saying that your period pain is all in your head it's definitely not it is a real thing but it's, it's accumulation of other factors as well it's accumulation of, of stress it's accumulation of unexpressed emotions it's lack of movement you know so many different things that feed into this as well as you you know your genetic history you know what your kind of legacy is that's passed down because you know you it's, it's it's not a definite but you tend to find you know certain things like endometriosis kind of follow down family lines you know so you've got all of these things factored in together plus then the shame factor and you know I remember being mortified you know um if, if my brother picked up you know the back of the box of tampons out the tro shopping trolley mm -hmm. what's this <laughs> you know and 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 the, sh the shame as you say around it all and so all of these things feed into our experience of how we experience menstruation as a woman and it doesn't have to be this way. And it, but as not taught at school, and we're also not taught about how our hormones impact the whole of our body. You know, it's, it's compartmentalized, isn't it? You know, I remember the, the diagram at school, you've got your uterus, you've got your fallopian. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. really baby. basic. Yeah, really basic. It comes out, lining comes out, that's your period. And you're left there going, okay. And we remember laughing at it because we thought it was so, it's so funny to show that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing that with my son now who's 11 and it's so basic you know and he's learned about periods he's been told about that but not by hormones you know it's just that they have periods that's it well this is the thing and we know one then discusses the impact it has on everything you know the link between our estrogen and our mood for example you know and then that carries on and then it's, it's only now I think it's this year for the first time ever menopause is going to be mentioned in school curriculums oh my goodness is it actually 
Mm-hmm. That's wow. a huge breakthrough. That's 2020 massive. is making history. Yeah. So it's, it, that's a massive breakthrough that it's that even definitely is. I certainly wasn't taught that you, know, you hear about it. So then you, as you go through life, you hear older women talking about the change or it's that time or, you know, the hot flushes and the, again, more giggles. Again, talked more about empowered. in a negative way. A lot of yeah. negativity associated to it. Hugely in fear, you know, and I've been asking some of my women um, patients recently who aren't coming for, for, you know, any women's health issues, but I say, you know, what do you know about menopause? Just out of pure curiosity, what do people understand? And well, not really. And I'm really scared of it is the usual response I get. Mm. And again, it's because we're not taught what's actually happening um, yeah. with, with menopause and, and what to look out for. And also the way, the different ways it can impact us. Yes. It's huge ways. And this is not just hot flushes and your period's going a bit haywire. It's way, way, way more than that. And it impacts on, it, it, was, it impacts on the whole of the rest of our lives, what kind of old age we're going to have, you know, um, everything in terms of our likelihood of falls, our likelihood of dementia, all of it. And that's, and that's why I wanted to dive, dive, in, dive in a little deeper into that. Just give us a little bit of uh, introduction to, from your periods, what stages we go through. Okay, so um, obviously, overview. you know, period, first periods, menage is, is, is um, basically, well, these days it's getting younger and, and that's to do with all the estrogens in the waters and the plastics and everything else and the over sugar, sugary diet, but on the okay. whole, menstruation is getting younger. So it used to be average age was 13, 14. It's now coming down. I think average age is now 11 or 12, but you know, it's not uncommon for girls as young as nine to be starting their periods. Um, and then you kind of, you're born with all the eggs, basically. You're born with all the eggs that you're going to have and they gradually go downhill. And from after sort of 35, 37, the decline in those eggs goes down. We've still got thousands of them, you know, you've, um, but the, the speed at which they decline goes, goes down. And people typically hit the menopause on average, the age is sort of 49, 51. That's, the menopause is actually when your periods stop. You know, it's when you've had no period for a year. You know, so effectively menopause is one day because after that you're postmenopausal and everything before that is perimenopause. Okay. Right. And the thing about perimenopause is that it can start, it, it's not suddenly you wake up one day and you're perimenopausal, it creeps up on you and it can creep up on you for up to a decade before you actually have that last period. Wow. You know, on average it's three to four years, but it can creep in from before that. Okay. And what are we looking out for in, in this? So, this- so age, age-wise, we're talking, you know, really, it can be women in their late 30s that start seeing the odd change. Um, but it's little things like, so there's there's actually 34 symptoms, and I'll never remember them all off the top of my head. But there's 30, That'd be amazing if you could. <laughs> there's 34 symptoms associated with perimenopause, yeah. and they're really diverse. And this comes down to, again, understanding the role that hormones have in our body. So if we kind of take a step back first of all what's happening is in the first half of our menstrual cycle so our menstrual cycle you've got your period and you've got the phase that leads up to ovulation and you've got the phase after ovulation and down your period again so in that first half of the cycle you've got your estrogen levels are rising you then you have the whole cascade of hormones that triggers ovulation and then ovulation when you when you ovulate there's a the the follicle which had the egg that you you have ruptured and passed through for ovulation that becomes the corpus luteum that pumps out progesterone essentially what it does is it helps get the lining ready for a potential pregnancy and it holds helps us keep that lining in before we we don't get the signal that we're pregnant it drops and then the lining is shed okay that's the very 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 simple version so what estrogen does estrogen has a role in our brain function it has a role in our ability to grow muscle it has a role in our kind of keeping everything that needs to be 
supple and moist, supple and moist. So like our eyes, for example, you know, um, so as we head through into perimenopause and these hormone levels drop, it's not just our periods that are affected. So we, women find they have dry eyes or that their skin becomes dry because the estrogen helps with our collagen, you know, the stuff that keeps our skin plumped up and youthful looking. Um, it helps with our ability to grow muscle. Okay, and this is a huge one um, because obviously, you know, our risk of falls when we get to old age and our risk of falling, if we don't have good muscles to help us with our core strength and our balance and our ability to move, then basically we're more prone for, for broken hips and, you know, staying or not being independent. And as we move into menopause and our estrogen levels drop, our ability to grow muscle slows and declines. And that's why you see this muscle loss, particularly in women as they age. So it's, but if women are told this, then actually they could spend their late thirties and their forties onwards on, on weights, you know, building that muscle. And that has also a huge impact on our metabolism in terms of, you know, the classic middle-aged spread, that gaining of belly fat, all of that, you know, um, because our metabolism drops, our insulin resistance goes up because of our hormone levels dropping. So we're more inflamed in our bodies. So we're generally, you know, at risk of many other conditions and problems. Okay. Or because of this one hormone, estrogen. Yeah, and progesterone as well, because progesterone affects our bone health. And the, once we, we reduce the number of times we're ovulating, we're producing less and less progesterone. Mm. But also progesterone from a mental health point of view has to do with anxiety. Progesterone is a kind of calming, relaxing hormone. So when we lose our progesterone, this is why our mood goes down as well as just for a period. But as women move into menopause, anxiety can be a big problem. Yes, for hundred percent. And this is there's a there's a couple of my clients have mentioned uh, uh, fast heart rate, uh, right. and then it's, it's been diagnosed as to do with the menopause. Yeah, because it's affecting every part of your body. And the other thing, it, it, um, your hormones affect are your arteries. You know, so one of the things we talked about estrogen keeping your skin supple and moist and everything. Well, the same with the walls of our arteries. You know, the, the hormones help our our um, arteries be bendy. You know, but as as we lose that estrogen, they don't bend and give in the same way. So if you think in terms of the pressure that then builds up, what are you heading towards potential uh, wow. kind of issues? And so it's it's affecting all of us. Our brain has so many so many um, estrogen receptors in it, you know. And there's an amazing there's an amazing doctor whose work is is really worth looking at. Um, a lady called Dr. Monacino. Um, and her work into brain research and estrogen and hormone levels is absolutely mind blowing in terms of what we're now finding out, because as women, you know, it, we all fear things like breast cancer, but we're actually at greater risk of dementia than we are of breast cancer. Oh, you know? really? Wow. So it's, it's looking after our brain health through our hormones and through how we live is one of the best things we can do. But of course, women have zero, zero clue about any of this. Mm. I get it. Some of this is fairly recent science, so it wasn't around when we were growing up to teach us, but it is now, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's not mentioned. And worse is that, you know, not all GPs have been trained to, to look at women in this way or, you know, address women's issues or women's health because their training hasn't reflected that either. Mm. You know, that's no disrespect to the doctors. If they're not taught it, how can they know it? But the, the, it, it needs, there needs to be a quicker job of filtering down research into practical um, 
educational bits that people can pick up on quickly. You're absolutely correct. This is exactly my reason for doing a podcast is to make people aware. And I, 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 lo- I just like to seek out the people like yourself to, to give us this information. Cause I'm literally sitting here with my mouth open at the things that you're saying, you know, no one's, no one's told me about the arteries or, you know, it, it, it's like, because I'm talking to females and majority of my female clients are over 40. So they're starting to hit one, either perimenopause they're in it or they're, they are experiencing some of the symptoms. And when, when they're saying their heart rate, you know, heartbeat's going really fast and they've been to doctors, they've had an ECG, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, well, even how we- and my next question is, you, what, you know, have you had your periods or what's going on with your menopause situation? Because yeah. I know that you're in the age, but the, that question hasn't been asked by them, by the doctor. No, they're not and asked. I'm shocked. Yes. About this. You can still be having periods and still having this. This is the thing. It's like people assume that they'll think about it a bit more once you no longer have periods but all of this you know you can still be having reasonably regular periods up until you know quite late in the day before um before you actually stop having periods and each woman's experience is completely different so you get some women who go along trot along every 30 days they have their cycle they literally have their last period one day they don't know it's their last period it just never comes again simple that's it done okay that's the very simple version there are not many women like that more typically you get um you'll go from maybe being a 28 day cycle, then all of a sudden you'll have a 35, 36 day cycle. Then the next month it will be a 25 day cycle. And then you might have a 21 day cycle, but then completely skip one and go two months without one. And that's the more typical pattern as you head towards, you know, stopping your periods. And you sometimes see women who go sort of six, eight months and they're kind of waiting for that 12 month, like sit, I'm done kind of moment. And all of a sudden they'll get the mother and father of a period, you know, and then you're like, oh, the clock starts again in terms of waiting for 12 months past that, you know, and, and so the experience of that is very individual and, you know, because the symptoms are so varied in, in perimenopause, it can be quite hard to spot. So you can even get tingling in the hands, you know, so more like neurological symptoms. Okay. Um, you can uh, have changes to your hair. Obviously, then there's, there's, you know, the mood that goes with it, the anxiety, but there's anger, there's a lot of anger that can go with this side of things. Um, changes in appetite, weight gain is the big one because you do become more resistant to insulin as you get older. Um, you know, there's many, many symptoms that go with it and things like more frequent urine infections. Because when I, mean, I talked about, um, you know, say for example, the tissues, the mucosal tissues of your eyes becoming drier. Although you also have mucosal tissues in your urethral, you know, the, the, the tube which carries your urine to, out of your body. And so that can become more prone to inflammation and being irritated more easily than it used to. So women get more UTIs. The other big one that no one wants to talk about is vaginal dryness. Yes, um, yeah, they don't want to talk about that. That's absolutely correct. Suffering that goes on with that. And, you know, it's, oh, I just thought I had to put up with it, you know. And, and it's such and- a shame, isn't it? You, you're such an important point you've brought up. Again, because it's a taboo, let's not talk about it, let's brush it under the carpet. Because if I told my husband I'm, I'm slowing down my period, or if I, if I admitted this to my friends, that I'm admitting something that's horrible about me, like, you know, such a horrible thing to go through menopause. And I think that's, that's why we're having this issue, aren't we? Yeah, it's huge. And it's, it's that whole concept of women and aging, that somehow you have less value once you're old and wrinkly and you're not, a, you know, reproductive yeah. years are kind of gone, you know. And that's that's a whole separate issue that we could talk about in terms of how women are perceived and our value and our worth. Evergreen, but, we should carry on like we are. Yeah, you know, you know it's all the kind of desire for the kind of lip fillers and Botox type exactly. stuff. Because we're trying to pretend this aging process isn't happening to us, but it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
the more we understand about what's happening, the more help can be given because there is help out there. You can get help from your GP with things like vaginal dryness. Yes. And you know, the number of women who are suffering and then the impact it has on their, their relationship with their partners, husbands, you know, because obviously, you know, in those intimate relations, they're, they're, they're not enjoying it or it's painful and that's causing drama in that side of things. And yet actually a conversation about it and it would solve so many problems yeah, yeah absolutely you know, but there's, there's, this is the other side of things if the women don't do not understand what's going on with them and they haven't whether well, found out themselves or haven't found this information easy to to find then their husbands definitely don't know no and and here's a here's a nightmare when you don't know yourself plus you don't know your partners and then your partner wants to have sex with you and you're trying to avoid it maybe you don't want to have it or maybe you're struggling because of the pain like you just mentioned and here's a breakdown of relationship which may have been a beautiful relationship once upon a time absolutely because you know let's face it how many men are comfortable with talking about women's gynae issues or hormone issues at the end of the day and with not women, many and most women aren't comfortable talking about it so then you've got this barrier that's growing up between people it's, it's not good absolutely yeah, so and it's often coming at a point in women's life as well when their own children are hitting puberty you know as as women we're having children that bit later than we're used to and so therefore you know it's it's you've got this house full of kind of raging hormones you've got your youngsters on one level hitting their all their hormonal changes and then you've got the mums hitting their issues you know whilst possibly the dads are also facing their own stress and midlife problems and you know you've got a cocktail there for a really and the, and the dad can't even go and sit in the pub anymore because they're shut <laughs> so there's no escape whatsoever <laughs> yeah that's a really good point if you actually said you you said it out loud but as you were saying it I can actually picture my own household also my friends households that you're absolutely right there my, my son's 15 you know I I'm sure I still have my period but I can see myself going you know what the things that you're starting to describe I can start feeling some of these things already um and yeah absolutely correct what you just said it is it's just a lack of education. so how do as a family then right how do we get more become more aware of what's going on with us what, what would you say do we sit down and communicate or do we say right mommy's gonna mommy's going through perimenopausal uh this is what hormones do like a little educational piece sure. get the whiteboard out and stuff like that you think yeah absolutely you know get the whiteboard out and just talk about it and say you know this is natural this is the same you know all these things that happen to our bodies puberty uh, you know childbirth menopause all of that these are all completely natural and you just be matter of fact about them. And kids, I mean, the younger you start with explaining things to kids, the more accepting they are about it. You don't have to go into, you know, you go into age appropriate levels of detail. Um, I'm a big believer if kids are asking the questions, they're ready to hear the answer, you know, that, that you can tell. You say, give a kid 100%. a little bit of information and then they'll say, yeah, but how or why or how or why? So you give another layer of information and then they stop and you're like, okay, they've had enough information right now. But when you keep them, how, why, how, why? You give a little bit more each time. Mm. And, but even, you know, just saying, look, you know, part of the age that mummy's at is that, um, you know, the hormones that allowed mummy to have babies and all the rest of it are going to change, you know, and in do doing that, sometimes, you know, mummy's going to be a bit grumpy or moody. And again, it's a huge opportunity to talk with your children about emotions, about mm -hmm. feelings, about managing emotions, all things that are going to help them go through puberty as well, because effectively it's the same problem. You know, if you've got fluctuating hormone levels and your mood is up and down, well, that's kind of what is happening to your teenager at the same time, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So it's actually a chance to talk about and give them a chance to say, do you know what? Or even if they don't say it because they're just, you know, too cool to say it. But I think, actually, I understand this. And then what you've got, hopefully, is a little bit of understanding on both sides 
and also an opportunity to express emotions and an opportunity to go actually feeling out of control or rage or whatever sometimes that does happen and it's okay I'm not a monster I'm not a bad person Mm -hmm. and it's then working out ways of dealing with that because there is a lot you can do through diet and lifestyle to take the edge off all of this you know and and again it's it's about one of the things I do with the women I work with is give them the tools to help you know manage all of this so it's not it's not that the menopause isn't going to happen it's not that it's going to be suddenly perfect and rosy it's it's managing it it's taking the edges off so they can still have the life they want and it starts with acknowledging it first doesn't it it's to kind of be leveling up with your own self as a female and say right I am going through this what changes do I really need to make because without without taking action you're just going to not make any change that you're feeling the symptoms but you're not doing anything to relieve them as such it's partly because I think we're, many of us are so disconnected from our bodies and the way we live. Mm. You know, people don't associate how they live in terms of what they put in their mouths, in terms of drinking food, the way they live their lives with how their body feels. There's a real disconnect. And I see this all the time when I work with women. There's no association between the food and drink and how, you know, what you do each day with then how you feel. And actually they're so, they're connected like this. You know, and it's it's again lack of education. You know, it's it's no one teaches this at school in terms of food and mood, uh, educate you know exercise and moods, um, stress levels, and stress is the hugest thing. Is stress above all else? You know, stress and sugar are the two absolute. Well, if we could add a third in, be movement back off. Um, but those are the three things, the three kind of fundamental pillars, if you like, around mm-hmm. which our health revolves and. I feel like a compound stress on women from the minute you start. I mean, my life changed from the minute I had the miscarriage Mm -hmm. to now when my kids are 15 and 11. And now I'm going to face the perimenopause or menopause. So the stress in my life is compounded Mm -hmm. from getting married to getting a house to then getting a job to then, you know, having kids. And we don't seem to know how to have a, uh, a process in place at each stage of our life to deal with the stress. It just gets more and more. And the results, 20 pounds heavier, 30 pounds heavier, because we take it out on ourselves. So the easiest thing to do quick stress relief is to get a bar of chocolate. It is. And, and I think, you know, modern life, we have so many roles to play now, which is great. You know, I, I love having professional role as well as my mummy role and all of that. It's, but it's, it's, we've added more things in without taking anything out. Yes. And, you know, something has to give and it's usually us, you know, so, um, the, the role stress has to play, I think it's not enough to not be stressed. What we have to do is act, actively put ourselves into a state of relaxation. And that's where things like mindfulness and meditation come in, you know, making sure there is that time for ourselves, you know, and that, that's, I mean, that's why I called my book, Put Yourself First, because it's, it's, it is that old, you know, saying about put your own oxygen mask on first, if you want to help everybody else, you know, and if, if you're internally, if you're combusting, because, you know, the mental load of everything you're trying to do, you know, you're trying to remember which of your kids' best friends has got a birthday, so they remember to take a card or a present, you know, down to um, walking the dog, going to the vets, you know, remembering to email back that patient inquiry, um, <laughs> you know, working out what's for dinner, um, whose sports kit is meant to be used on Clean and ready to go. Yeah. You know, all this kind of stuff, never mind then, you know, actually time for you and your partner, um, you know, as a couple, where's that time to factor in? You might also, and again, this is the other thing that starts happening as, as women head into their 40s and into their 50s, often they're then involved in elderly care. 
you know so you've got this trip this double squeeze going on there's still being pet you're still parenting you but you also got the elderly issue coming in so you've got this sandwich issue going on so the stress is huge and i you know one of the things that's really made me passionate about this is getting women to understand this as a preventative because i over the years i've i've seen so many women on my treatment couch in kind of their 50s and 60s and their health is broken and you talk to them about what's gone on for them and it is it's this story of being a carer and a giver and a carer and a giver and this loss of sense of self because there's been no time for them to be who they are you know they are mummy they are wife they are daughter but they're not they don't get a chance to be who they are and you know this this has a huge impact on health and the number of women it's I see heartbreaking the way you're describing it, you know, yeah. and I exactly have same clients like you just described and you hear the story and you like, I literally want to through the zoom, give them a big hug. But I'm like, oh my God, you know, look what you've done to yourself. Now look what we've got to work with. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's then again through, and then you take, you say, well, okay, so what do you have for breakfast? What do you have for lunch? What do you have for dinner? What do you drink throughout the day? And then you hear this litany of this horrendous products that are basically going into our bodies and poisoning us and then you chuck in you know once once my female clients are in their 60s I can list off the medication they're usually on when they come in to see me and it doesn't they get on this cascade of medication that each then causes another side effect causes another side effect and actually so much of this could have been prevented you know um and the other thing this is the other thing for women at this age as we head into perimenopause and I think this is something I really want people to understand is, is the effect of our hormones on our immune system, right? Our immune system and our hormones are intimately connected. So what is the other common age for women to be diagnosed with autoimmune problems? It's their forties, right? This is not a coincidence. So on, in terms of our immune system, our estrogens, the first half of our cycle is very much about um, stopping us from getting ill, you know, having that higher level antibacterial, antiviral input. So that effectively, from a reproductive perspective, we can get pregnant, okay? Because if we're sick, we're not going to find no. a mate and get pregnant, right? Second half of our cycle, progesterone. Progesterone dampens down our immune system slightly so that if there's an embryo waiting to burrow in, it doesn't get nuked by our immune system, okay? okay. So you've got okay. this kind of protect you, dampen it down cycle going on. As we head into menopause, the first hormone that actually generally starts to drop is the progesterone, Okay, people always think of the it's estrogen. They both estrogen is gently doing this, but you get these estrogen fluctuations, which is why you get the kind of flooding period one month and then the very light period the next month. But overall, the progesterone is gradually getting lower. So what happens is we become estrogen dominant. So even though progesterone is getting uh, estrogen is getting lower relative to the progesterone, it's elevated, right? So one of the effects that estrogen can have on our immune system in this way is we produce more antibodies. Now that's great when you're fighting off viruses and things and current climates, really helpful. But it can have the effect that if, again, if our body's in a general state of inflammation and general, generally not good, or if we're biologically, gene uh, genetically prone to it because it runs in our families, that overproduction of antibodies over time can tip us into autoimmune disorders. This is why women tend to suffer with more autoimmune disorders than men do on the whole, right? And this is why your 40s is your classic time to be developing autoimmune problems. So if we hop to the doctors with these different symptoms and, you know, we're either told we're stressed out, which probably, let's face it, we are, but that's not the only issue, right? Or these things either don't get investigated or it goes, it goes one of two ways. You either get told it is your hormones and therefore not investigated properly, or you get... Um, told it's other problems, medicated, but no one actually asks if it's your hormones, right? So again, it's about knowing what questions to ask when you go to the doctor and asking, well, can you check, you know, my thyroid? Can you check 
my my b my vitamin b12 levels you know can you check my iron levels can you can you you know all of these things can you please check them out for autoimmune markers okay now we've excluded this can you check my heart health because you know people don't ask to check women's um heart health oh. right and so you get told you're anxious or you're depressed and you get given prescribed a you know a, an antidepressant a tylopram yeah absolutely oh my goodness no, but actually what an amazing thing you just told us actually you know it could actually just be you, you need some hrt <laughs> you know so so it's it's kind of so you've got these things you know you're more prone to autoimmune disorders at this age that they get skipped autoimmune disorders obviously you know, can take years to diagnose and i get that because on the whole they are rare but they are more prevalent as you head into that mm. age you get told you, you either don't have a heart health problem looked at because you're told you're hormonal right <laughs> or you have or get told you've got a heart or blood pressure problem when actually it's hormones that could be resolved with a, a bit of HRT. So again, it's, it's, it's please let's get women looked at from all the angles, look at them from the hormonal perspective, look at them from the heart health, look at them from the autoimmune problem. And let's look at women in the round and not just say they're stressed and anxious. Love that. Absolutely brilliant. And I think this word just, that you just said, hormonal, these are hormonal problems. I think that's such a throwaway thing to say, isn't it? Because what does that even mean? What does that even mean? It means nothing to a woman, really. An imbalance in hormones. Let's check your hormones. The language yeah. needs to really be, be the right language to be used, especially when you go into the doctors. It does. I mean, but the problem, the problem with checking hormones is that once you get to around 45, the blood tests for hormone, people say, well, can I have a blood test to check if I'm perimenopausal? And on the whole, they get you know, told, no, you can't, because that's because with your hormones going up and down like this all the time, it's very hard to get an accurate snapshot of where you're at. So it is diagnosed mostly on the symptoms. But again, I'm finding that when many patients go to their GPs, they're not actually told that the GPs aren't aware of 34 symptoms. So if you go saying, oh, you know, I've got this erratic period and it floods sometimes and I'm having the odd hot flush, oh, perimenopause, easy, you know. Um, but if you're going with this myriad of other symptoms and, and this general feeling of malaise and tiredness and low mood and, and just feeling like the spark has gone out of your life, oh, you're depressed. You know, and it's not necessarily the case at all. No, because you might be all right. There's no background to say that you needed to be depressed or something. Nothing's happened, yeah. uh, but but you're feeling like joy has gone out of your life, and you might blame the COVID for it. When actually yeah. you might have been all right through COVID, but because you're showing these symptoms, what what are the what would you say the main symptoms are going into perimenopausal, Marianne? So it's things like, the, I think the obvious ones are the first ones that women are likely to really associate with it and spot are changes to their cycles. Again, so it's this lengthening or shortening, it's the period becoming heavier or lighter, you know, um, it's those irregularities, it's things like either their mood, that like before their period or throughout the cycle, that their mood is more um, volatile, you know, so much more likely to get angry more quickly. Um, and things like tender breasts are a big one, breast pain is a huge one. You know, and again, you know, that's always don't ever assume, oh, it's just my hormones. I won't get checked with the sore breast. Always get checked in case it is breast cancer or something. Mm -hmm, but you know, if, if you're noticing that both breasts are kind of experiencing the same problem at the same time at certain times of your cycle, you can probably reassure yourself a little more there. But, you know, again, it's that classic. Oh, well, I'm only 45. Yeah, a bit sore breast. It's my hormones. But actually, no, get it checked. Get it checked all the time um and so it's then it's noticing dry skin is a classic one you know things that literally everything dries out you know um so loss of loss of plumpness from your lips um oh really wow well if you think what what estrogen and collagen are intimately related yes. so as your estrogen declines your collagen declines 
you know, and this, so this actually has an effect on, on the labia as well. So, it, you know, again, it comes back to that whole issue around comfort in that department. Um, and, you know, so it's your skin, your hair, you might have decreasing vision, you might have find your sleep, whereas previously you've been a good sleeper, that goes to pot. The whole kind of where you could previously get away with having a few treats and things, all of a sudden, you know, you've gone up a dress size or two, and it's, you know, it's more all over your belly as opposed to everywhere else you know um you might and start it's gradual isn't it marianne it's gradual oh, like you said it sneaks up on you yeah and this is the thing there isn't one day where you suddenly right today i'm perimenopausal and you know yeah. it's crept in and it's it's all a lot of it, the non-gyny stuff is what you you don't notice creeping up mm, yeah absolutely right. so, well, you know but you people will say you know i remember I, years ago i worked with a woman and she said to me oh you know in my 20s i struggle to stay under nine stone in my 30s i struggle to stay under 10 stone and now in my 40s i'm struggling to stay you know to kick get myself back down to 11 stone kind of thing and i remember thinking oh yeah whatever you know and it's so true it is so true you know that whole ability to kind of you know you go on holiday you indulge for a week or so come back same weight yeah well yeah you used to do that but you now you go away you gain 10 pounds spend four or five months trying to lose that 10 pounds but yeah. you know go away for a week and it's all back on you know and and whereas back in your 20s you might have gained a pound or two if you were lucky you know and and then so it would, hard isn't it yeah it, yeah it's really right. difficult but it's then understanding that actually if that's happening how you need to adapt yeah and it's, it's and what do you need to do to adapt so the big one is blood sugar balance you know so it's really the, the key thing i try and advise my ladies is is um understand what you're eating okay and understand how it spikes your blood sugar so obviously everything you eat turns into sugar in some way in your bloodstream right but some things do it slower and some things do it faster than others and what you're trying to avoid is these spikes in blood sugar because every time you spike your blood sugar you pump out more insulin insulin is effectively a growth hormone what does growing do it puts fat on but also it can make you growth hormone what do cancers love growth hormone you know all of this kind of stuff so you don't want too much of this insulin floating around you want the right amount Right. And the way to not um, be constantly pumping out insulin is to not be constantly eating. So getting rid of snacking culture for a start and, you know, because your body needs time to switch off and repair. Um, eat properly, as in like, don't skip, don't skip out on, on huge meals. You know, you're, 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 what you're not wanting are these, again, crashes, because if you if you get to the point where you're too hungry, you know, that's when you'll eat the, the bag of crisps and the cake and do what have you. And it, but it's, it's knowing your body and knowing what works for you. But it's also eating stuff that's actually nutritious. So my big bugbear are breakfast cereals. You know, they are the most pointless creation ever. They're purely manufactured as, you know, for financial gain as opposed to any nutritional value. You know, have real food for breakfast. So, for example, you know, get into having your eggs and get some veg in at breakfast. Um, aim for 10 portions of veg a day. That's the healthy amount of veg we should be having. And people always say, oh my God, that's so much. But no, if you chuck in spinach and mushrooms with egg in the morning, you know, that's two. That's three, two then, yeah. yeah. Another yeah. smoothie at 11 o'clock, a candy yeah. spinach smoothie or a cucumber, yeah. Yeah, get that in there. You know, then for example, you know, this obsession with sandwiches we have in this country is just ridiculous. You know, put some, you know, get your, so your brown rice, get lentils, get more into your beans, um, all of these things that you can have alongside your chicken or your egg or your fish, you know, or, or your, um, a bit of cheese, you know, in moderation, but again, loads of veggies where you can, some fruit, get into the nuts, have all of that. And then for your evening meal, this is where we, we get it so wrong now, uh, the big heavy evening meal, it's just, that's great if you're about to go and plow a field, but you know, you need to plate a pasta and rice or baked potato at six, seven o'clock or at night. And then you sit on your backside on the sofa all evening. 
that will turn into fat. And the, as we get into perimenopause, that is more likely to happen because you get that spike in blood sugar. And again, that just it's going nowhere because you're not moving. Not moving. Yeah, I, I absolutely love what, how you just described the way we should eat because this is exactly how I teach. And every time you were saying that, I was like, oh my God, I love this woman. She's just talking my language. So, so, so true and so right. But this requires effort, doesn't it? It does require effort. And the, the big thing it requires is planning. And, you know, and it's also, again, we, we're so quick to judge ourselves and beat ourselves up. And I don't know if you saw my post yesterday about the whole, you know, the crusade dish being destroyed by my puppy. But, you know, basically, you know, it's that we, we're not that much different to the puppy that sees the treat on the side and just goes for it. OK, that's what he did. He, he knew there was some food in that bowl. He flipped it. He broke it. He got the food. Right. We are no different. We go for the easy option. And that's not because we're lazy. It's not because we lack willpower. It's how we're actually hardwired. OK. Mm -hmm. Back in our hunter-gatherer days, you went for whatever was nearest at hand because you didn't know where the next thing was. Yeah. And in evolutionary terms, we're not that far evolved from there. Yes, in the last 200 years, the, the leaps we've made in, in science and everything else have been huge, but our brains are still catching up on all of that. So we see the easy treat in the kitchen. Like we have people, you can see people have these treat cupboards, you know, they've got a cupboard full of like crisps. Open and, and they're, they're falling out, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, you're going to eat it. If it's there, you are going to eat it. 100%. There's huge numbers of studies now that show, you know, when you get these nations which are slim and healthy, you know, what have they do? Why have they all got more willpower than those nations of us who are getting fatter? Of course no, not. It's, not that. it's how they're, it's what's in their cupboards. Yeah. Because if you open your cupboard and it's full of chocolate bars and it's full of cakes and treats and things for the kids' lunchboxes, you can eat it. Yeah. And, and I and blame kids for it. I have yeah. to get it. I get my clients saying, well, I, I really can't get rid of all of them because, you know, my kids, it's not fair on them. I said, damn it, let them not have it for a little while. If you need to practice some self-discipline, just leave it out from your kitchen for a while. Because if you if the food is in your possession, you're going to eventually eat it. Absolutely. And especially with your lack of or tired or stressed yeah. or hung or, or because you've not had time to eat properly, you're very hungry. So you want that quick hit and you you're hardwired to go for sugar and fat. It's simple as that. So it's it's kind of I'm not saying never have this stuff because it's also, you know about balance. It's hugely about balance. But you know what? If you're going to have cake, right, go out and have it with morning coffee, for God's sake, so that you've got a chance to actually use the energy from it. Don't have it at five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock when you're then just going to have it turn onto your, you know, an extra inch on your belly. You know, if you're going to have cake, have it in the morning and then go for a really good walk straight after to yeah, bring your blood there sugar we go. back down. You know, and it's, it's, it's being mindful. And, you know, certainly when I was office-based and again through my the toddler years i haven't got all of this right by any stretch of the imagination you know i've still got a little bit of weight to lose i'm gradually working on it in a very slow and very steady and healthy way and because i'm sure i'm trying to do for myself is establish healthy balanced principles that i can live by not do a crash diet where i get down mm -hmm. to my ideal weight and then six months later i'm actually back at that plus another half stone because you know because i've gone i can't continue with this harsh regime so it's, you know, have some cake, but be mindful. So if you've had cake, for example, know that. And then that evening, don't have the glass of wine. Mm. You know, don't. About the balance is exactly what I say. And I'm not saying don't ever drink alcohol, actually, just what's on that. is a huge, huge, huge deal for women's hormones. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, about it's so depressing. Yeah, because we'll I love a good glass of red wine and I love a good gin and tonic, right? So, but the reality is, if you're a perimenopausal woman, alcohol is a complete disaster zone. Now that's because our liver plays a huge, huge part in um, our hormonal balance process, right? Okay. So if we think of our ovaries, we think of our uterus, but actually our liver is one of the key things that that um, 
we use in terms of clearing all the kind of byproducts of estrogens mm -hmm. that we don't need the stuff that makes us feel cranky and irritable and bloated and sore breasts and more likely to cramp and generally inflamed all of that that's our liver that does that right so if we then add in alcohol basically we're asking our liver to work really hard and i'm not talking about like huge amounts of drinking here i'm talking about the kind of social drinking that most women do these days which is generally an unhealthy level you know and um the more we drink of that the more we can't our liver is just compromised in terms of how well it can do the other stuff so we become more hormonal in the, in the, you know not in a good way it's not clearing out those byproducts so wow. um and from a sugar point of view obviously alcohol is just like drinking liquid sugar you know um and again we're spiking our blood sugar it's going on as weight gain because we become more insulin resistant as our hormones drop as well so what, so, would, you, what would you say for perimenopausal women and how much should they drink well, I mean, the government guidelines are kind of 14 units a week. Now, if you think about a bottle of wine, right, your average bottle of wine these days, you know, because the percentage of alcohol in them has gone up, you know, one bottle of wine is usually about 12 units now. Okay. Right. So if you think about it, binge drinking is considered anything that's six units in one sitting. So if you right. have half a bottle of wine, you're binge drinking, right? Most women would not consider themselves binge drinking on half a bottle of wine. And so what really, and again, this is, this is where our whole culture right now is not set up to help us. You know, that old adage of one glass of wine a day, much more sensible because you're not challenging your liver with too much at any given point. But really, if you know, ideally you'd be having no more than about three or four glasses a week, you know, and I'm talking the 175 mil glasses, not these great big, like- Not, not the goblets, <laughs> no. Goblet ones. <laughs> you know you can, you can the whole bottle in there this is the thing and this is one of the things where we're going wrong we pour back in the day the wine glasses that sat on our tables were were small mm. you know we've got some that we inherited from my late mother-in-law and you know you look at them and i'm like oh that's a thimble you know and but actually it's a healthier way of drinking get yourself a smaller glass and enjoy it and i say mm. go go high you know go go for the good wine right go for your 20 30 pound bottles right yeah make it last over organic two yeah and, and and actually really savor it and really enjoy the flavors ditch your five six pound bottles that you're then getting several you know through spend the same amount of money but on just a smaller amount of really good stuff and enjoy it and savor it and again have it more mindfully as opposed to just neck it and one of the things i've been working on is substituting it um so things like i've been really exploring um the the drinks that feel like adult drinks you know um because that's half the battle is the reason we pour the wine and pour the gin of an evening is it's a it's a pressure valve off isn't mm. it we've maybe got the kids to bed or we've got to that point it's friday we can relax we've survived the week and we're just like oh you know I, you know well done us we've we've adulted well all week you know we've done all <laughs> we need our downtime and yeah. so it's the act of pouring into the glass which is actually 90 yes. percent of, of why we want the wine not just the effect of the wine and I found, you know, get yourself a nice beer glass. And I am a big fan of the, some of the 0% beers. There's so many of them out there now that you can play which flavors. Pour the beer into your wine glass and it, it kind of has a pretty similar effect. Mm, you know? a very good point. You know, it, it's it's the symbolism of pouring that drink that's the important part. So still have that. And holding just... that glass and having it in that particular glass. I think it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah. And even if you were trying to reduce it, you could have one 0%, couldn't you? And one, yeah. your normal... Uh, Exactly. Exactly. So again, it's not about don't suddenly you've got to go teetotal. It's not, yeah, you know, not. wine and wine and things like that we've enjoyed as, as as you know over the centuries perfectly well, but we were never meant to drink it in the quantities and strengths that we do now. 
Yeah, yeah. Especially now if you're going through perimenopause or menopause, these are the things you want to quickly touch on sleep. I made a note of it. What is with sleep that's affected so badly that you get up at two o'clock in the morning and can't go back to sleep? I know the hot flashes. Is that right? Is it flashes, not flushes? Depends where you're from. You know, it really doesn't what matter. What is actually, what is hot flash? What, what's happening to your body that when no you're not entirely 100% sure what's exactly happening, but your ability to regulate your body temperature, your thermoregulation is compromised. And what we do know is there's certain things that make it worse. Okay. So being overweight is one of them. Smoking okay. is a huge one. Smoking and drinking alcohol and stress definitely make them worse. Um, and again, if you, from a from a just pure physics point of view, if you've got extra weight on you, you're essentially wearing an extra layer of insulating <laughs> substance, aren't you? Yeah. And so clearing that heat through your body is worse. If you're stressed, you're inflamed. You know, um, you're in a general state of inflammation. Um, so hot flushes, yeah. Again, some some women don't even have them, and some women are ah, they're just their lives are ruined. You know, they're literally pouring sweat off them. Um, and you've got that ex- those those extremes. Um, but stress is one of the huge ones that plays a massive, massive impact and sugar intake and all of that. And again, having that more balanced life can take the edge off. Um, but if it's really that life altering, which it really can be for some women, then it really is worth the discussion about HRT with your doctor. You know, you don't have to have your life completely destroyed now. Mm-hmm. And what uh, about sleep, Marianne? So sleep, progesterone is a huge um, hormone in sleep. And obviously okay. as, as we head into menopause, yeah, we're eating less, or and the strength. What, when we talk about strong ovulation, you're talking about the quality of the um, egg, which obviously declines as we age. But you're also talking about the corpus luteum out of which it's, you know, the egg has come out, and the amount of progesterone that's pumping out. Right. And basically, we we pump out that bit less than we used to. Right. And that impacts our sleep because it's quite common, isn't it, just before a period for sleep to go one yes, piece. Absolutely, that's very that's true. Because of the progesterone crash. So if you think of that on a more general level of what's going on we've generally got less progesterone in our system so our ability to sleep well is compromised but it's also affected by other things and this is again where it comes back to all the different sort of diet and lifestyle changes we can make to kind of combat that drop in hormones we can do other things to improve our sleep so um you know not being deficient in magnesium is a big one you know dietary wise we're very deficient in magnesium so making sure you're eating foods rich in magnesium so things like your pumpkin seeds, your dark green leafy veg, um, having your bath in Epsom salts, you know, because Epsom salts are rich in magnesium. So you're getting your body absorbed in that so your body and muscles can relax more. And again, it comes back to blood sugar balance. If your blood sugar is not balanced, and again, this comes down to our liver health. If our liver is having to deal with too much sugar, what it does is to get rid of that sugar at night, it pumps it out at nighttime. It literally, whilst we're asleep and we're not eating, it dumps that sugar into our bloodstream. Um, so it, our liver pumps out that sugar into our bloodstream okay so when that blood sugar is pumped into our bloodstream overnight as a dump to try and get rid of it um it makes us restless mm. so again not having your blood sugar and i'm not talking you know you don't have to be diabetic or pre-diabetic for this to happen a lot of us are, a lot of women are wandering around in this general state of pre-diabetes to be fair you know but it's it's so it's enough that just to be a little bit out of balance and not optimal for it mm-hmm. to disrupt your sleep. The other one is hydration. So a lot of people walk around being dehydrated and our body's way of dealing with this is to make us sleep poorly. Wow. 
So wow, that's a golden nugget right there. I am so uh, this when people are listening to this on if they are listening to it right now, it's mm-hmm. such such obvious things that you've mentioned, but because they're not pointed out so obviously, like you've just said, no one's associating the dehydration with a lack of sleep. Yeah, particularly in perimenopausal stage. The disconnect between how we live and how actually how yeah. we live. Is it in your book, Marianne? All yeah. of what you've said? Most of what I've said is in my book. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. We, we were definitely going to be putting a link down below and, and getting this book for sure, because you could, could revisit this book over and over again. I'm sh- for sure after this podcast, going to be ordering that 100%. It's so. Well, I've, written, I've written the book to be revisited because, and this is the thing I want to get across, is like, let's forget this idea that we're aiming for this perfect life okay we're not yeah. aiming to be this kind of perfect body with the perfect balanced life because that is not realistic and it's not life and we'll end up distressing and being miserable because we're failing you know not being perfect it's about constantly working on ourselves where we're at because things keep coming along and derail us so you know you might be doing super well with healthy eating and exercise you know you might be and then something happens in your family like a family member's really sick or you know you lose one of your parents or you know your child is getting bullied at school or you know any any of these these life dramas Mm. that happen to us and whilst you're dealing with that and going through that it can be really hard to maintain you know your healthy eating your good sleep practices all of that because you're human right Mm. so you constantly need to be revisiting where am I at with this stuff and, and that's how I've written my book in that sense of a, a system of questions to be asking yourself and then going back to, because you might be doing brilliantly with your exercise for six months, but then like, this, this is one of the things that happened to me. I was running, I was really getting into my running and then I tore a muscle in my calf, I, you know, pinged, actually had a little dent in my calf. Oh, so totally, yeah, really painful. And it, I never fully got back into running after that. And I'm not someone who naturally loves exercise. I, that's something I massively struggle with doing. It's, it's, yeah, it, it, I don't think many people do, quite frankly. No, you get some gym bunnies. I'm definitely not in that category. Yeah. And so so then I fell right out of exercise, right? And, you know, that didn't have a good effect on me. But I'm gradually revisiting all of that and getting more active in other ways. You know, so it, what I'm trying to say is, is, you know, it's not that when you know this stuff, you suddenly live this life that is perfection in health. It's not. It's knowing this stuff so that you can be a work in progress and constantly chipping away at it. 100% and is it, what can you do in that environment as well in that situation that you're in so if you couldn't run what else could you do to keep close to that target rather than I can't run so I'm going to give up everything and I'm going to start eating bad food at the same time because they go exactly. hand in hand don't they time, you know but it's, it's walking you know you can if you yeah, well, exactly. depending on where you're at once you're healed enough to walk you know but then or it's not that you can now but swimming you know or it's yoga or it's what else can you do is exactly yeah, it's, it's keeping this mindset of how can I still be active and and the big one I think is is really especially with blood sugar balance you know the studies show that it's not about busting it out for an hour at the gym it's moving throughout the day yeah. that, that they took um a bunch of people doing different forms of exercise but the same number so I think I can't remember how many minutes was it 60 minutes but one did it as a blast one did it in two sections and one did it at like two three minutes every hour or you know like and intermittent, then, intermittent yeah. yeah almost like a kind of jog on the spot for two minutes every however often yeah and they were the ones who had the better blood sugar balance ah that makes total sense it does because it's movement it's we're designed to move and we're not designed to sit in chairs you know physiologically chairs are a complete disaster you know for our our whole for our bowel and bowel transit for our um pelvic health in terms of our you know our uterus function and blood flow to the uterus and ovaries because you think when we sit we're folded you know we're effectively squishing it all yeah yeah. hours sitting and we need good blood flow to these things and so you know it's movement throughout the day 
there's a difference between movement and exercise isn't there people mix that people think they're same thing it's not it's not the same thing and that's why you don't have to love the gym to move your body absolutely and you can start whatever level you're at so if you you know because people especially if you're in pain or you have a lot of weight to shift you know to get told to exercise you're gonna you're gonna have the barrier come down because it's going to be so far removed from from what where you feel you're at but it's it's literally as simple as you know if you're someone who has stroke say for example is struggling with mobility you can move in your chair if you need to you know you can you can get your heart rate elevated and increased by by kind of raising your arms and yeah doing that kind of thing it's starting where you're at yeah okay it's not going okay so i you know i'm three stone over um i'm not going to look good in that kind of little crop top and legging set so therefore i'm not going don't even worry about going to the gym and putting that stuff on put your trainers on and go for a walk down the block you know that is still better for you and I think that's what people don't believe in. People think I'm all or nothing. And I talk about this in, my, in many of my podcasts and I, when I, the way I teach. It's not about all or nothing. That's what society is making us. Either wear those two pieces that you've just described. Look perfect on your Instagram. Those are the people you want to become or be. Not really, because that's not reality. Not for many people. Not no, for, for 90% of people, we do not get into these two pieces and, and plants around the gym. But... For people like ourselves, it's, it's about movement. It's about what can you do today? Can you do five minutes? Can you do 10? Build upon that versus <laughs> just saying, let's just wait for the gyms to open, the virus to clear, then I'll start doing something. You're mm. going to be waiting for a long time. Yeah, or well, I'm going to wait till after Christmas and I'm not going to worry about yeah. between only six weeks left till Christmas or whatever it is. You can do a heck of a lot. You could bring your blood sugar level and your HbA1c, which is a level you've over control. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm talking so much, I'm drying up. <laughs> but... um basically you can bring all that quite down just by moving yeah absolutely oh my goodness you have <laughs> told us so many good so many golden nuggets you have dropped in this uh this podcast is going to be played over and over again can i bring you back again thank you can of course anytime oh my goodness because i'm sure there's going to be some questions um from my own clients actually straight after this <laughs> for myself as well but thank you so much before i let you go if you can still yep. speak are you okay Oh, no, I'll just dry up. I'm going to grab water or something. <laughs> if you can excuse me one second. I'm yeah, just go for it. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. That's better. Let's give a water at time. What would yep. you give us three tips for women that are listening to this today? What three things should they work on first? So um, we're talking about 40 plus heading towards menopause. Reducing your carbs in your evening meal. Reducing your alcohol. Sleep. And improving your sleep. Yep. Because if you can get your sleep improved, you're more likely to resist everything else in terms mm-hmm. of chocolate, cake, alcohol. You're more likely to feel motivated to move. Yeah. Um, yeah, those would be the, the key things. And a healthy dose of self-compassion. <laughs> yeah, yes, don't forget that. We're very quick to tell ourselves off if we don't do these things. But we need to remember that we are going through whatever we're going through and being kind to ourselves, just like you will be with your friend. You will never tell your friend off, but you're very happy to tell yourself off super fast. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mariana. So appreciate your time. Appreciate what you've just said. Let us know where we can find you. Okay. So you can find me on Instagram on Marianne underscore Killick underscore coaching. Okay. Um, Marianne Killick coaching on Facebook. Okay. And MarianneKillick.com. Quite simple, straightforward, but the your link to the book actually, or the, men, the name of your book is actually in the description. I already popped that in there. And is that available on Amazon right now? Available on Amazon. What it looks like. Got it there. Oh, fantastic! When did you write that, uh, Marianne? When? When did you write that? Uh, so it came out in February this year. Oh, brilliant! Congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic. And so I'm going to put the link below, guys, if you want to have this book for just you know refer to it over and over again, like Marianne said. And the book says something about not just surviving but thriving, and I love those words. Exactly. Most so, women are just surviving day to day. And it doesn't have to be like that. No absolutely brilliant thank you so much have a great day and i'm definitely bringing you back on take care so much bye bye Farah. thank you bye. for having me. take care bye bye hey everybody this is far again i wanted to invite you to the best thing i've ever created inside the deep health community it's a challenge and we call it the 30-day anti-diet challenge every professional woman is one challenge away from achieving the life where she can gain control over her health and her weight loss i've created this challenge to help you lose up to 10 pounds in weight no matter where you are in your weight loss journey this challenge is going to help you to understand why the diets you've tried in the past that haven't worked and why eating this way can revolutionize the way you look at food and transform your body and create that ultimate success. I recommend highly you do this right now. Stop this video, pause it, go online and press the 30dayantidietchallenge.com and join the next challenge. The next challenge starts in few days.